0: in God's Word to John chapter 15, a familiar passage. The words of Jesus spoken the night before he died as he gave his disciples parting words that John recorded. I'm really concentrating on verse 7 of this passage only today in a unique way as we continue to think about the theme of prayer. You'll see that verse is about prayer, but I want to read it in some context, so I read John 15:1 through 11 Jesus is the one speaking I am the true vine and my Father is the vine dresser Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away and every branch that does bear fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you Abide in me and I in you These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. This is God's holy word. In the 1500s when the reformer who was most associated with the land of Scotland, John Knox, lay dying, he called around him the elders of his Scottish church that they called a Kirk And John Knox is recorded to have said this, I have been in prayer much for the future of the Kirk of God, despised by the world but precious in his sight. I have called out often to God for her and I have commended her into the safekeeping of Christ to protect her from Satan. That was just one indication of the mighty prayer life of John Knox. If you studied the biographies of various reformers, you would find some who were greater perhaps in their doctrine like Calvin and Luther. You would find some that were possibly greater preachers than John Knox, but no one who was a greater prayer for the kingdom of God. At one point in his younger years, John Knox was actually captured for his Reformation beliefs and Made a slave on a galley ship where he was chained to an oar to row and probably thought he would not live to survive or get out of that situation. But he prayed as he was chained to the oar. And he prayed for Scotland. He begged God for the soul of his native country. And God delivered Scotland uniquely as a country over to a dominating rule of the gospel for several centuries. Mary, Queen of Scots, who was the bitter adversary of Knox in all of his time later as a leading reformer in that country, was heard to have said this, I would sooner face 20,000 mounted cavalry riding towards me with lances drawn than to face John Knox's prayers. That's a man who prayed. Your growth in prayer is a direct means of and certainly parallels growth in your total relationship to God. Certainly, we look to the Word of God as a means of growth, as the food on which we grow, but we look also to prayer as a true means of God's grace. And it is by prayer that our individual and corporate relationship with Him increases and enlarges, so that as we mature and become more like Jesus Christ, the things we ask of God become more like the askings, the requests of Jesus himself, and we end up with a verse like John fifteen seven that I put before you today. If you abide in me, remain, rest, cling to me, and my words abide in you, Jesus said, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Some people think that's surely some kind of a trick Ask whatever I wish. Well, of course, there's a condition to it. It's said right there. If the words of Christ and the will of Christ abide in you, they will so shape you that whatever you ask will be that which Christ himself would seek after. And he cannot do anything but give that which he himself would ask as he works in you. The missionary William Carey once said, Fervent, believing prayer lies at the root of our personal godliness. Not just church attendance, not just study of the Bible. Fervent, believing prayer lies at the root of personal godliness. I used to struggle over something that I stand back now and I think, well, how naive and foolish I was. And yet I think I probably was 10 years in the ministry struggling between Uh, two different sayings pertaining to prayer that I thought, well, it's either this way or it's that way. The one saying was one you might have seen in cruel work or stitching in your grandma's kitchen that says three words, prayer changes things. You all know that motto, prayer changes things. Prayer influences and seems to bring about things in this world that are mysterious that we cannot explain how they happened except somehow by the power of God. But then there's another saying, and I thought, well, maybe this one is really the, the clue or the key to things. Prayer changes people, and people change things. Now, you might say that one is kind of more humanistic because it's giving people the credit for changes that God is behind. But I realized how naive I was that for a long time I went back and forth and I said, well, which one of those is really more true? And I realized today... I didn't have to make that choice. It's not a choice. They're both true. There are things that change according to the workings of God that are powerful and mysterious, and so we can't trace exactly how they're set in motion or why they come to be, and some great thing happens. And we say, well, how how did that happen? I don't see. And other things we can say, well, this key individual uh, turned about or did something or said something or used his authority to make something happen, and it must have been God speaking through him and changing him and working it out through him or her. They're both true. Prayer does change historic events. It also changes the person who prays. And the primary goal in prayer, as you see, is to bring us into such a communion relationship, such a well-bonded relationship to God that by his Spirit we are increasingly being changed, being transformed into the image, the understanding, the mindset, the worldview of Jesus Christ the Son. And as God changes us, he causes things small and great to be different all around us as we act on that. We're looking at one pivotal verse here in John fifteen seven today a verse where Jesus himself presented the principle of organic union between a Christian believer and himself. And he calls for us, depending on your translation, to either remain or abide in him. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, you will ask what you wish and it will be given to you. And we say, wow, that's really something. That's really quite an inducement to prayer. Now, the first point I want you to see today is that the goal of every Christian life is to abide or remain in Christ, to pursue after this organic bond of vine and branch, as he put it, that exists between us and our living Savior. That word in the verses that I read, the first 11 verses, the word to remain or abide occurs there nine times. It's the dominating thought, certainly, of what Jesus was saying there. And he was saying it to Christians. This was spoken to his disciples. This isn't an evangelism passage that he was speaking to the world at large and saying, I'd like you people who don't know me at all to come and remain in me. He was speaking to disciples and saying, now that you are bonded to me, now that my Holy Spirit, which I have from the Father, is in you, active in you, cling to that. Act upon that. Seek after that. Surrender control of yourself to that and let God draw you and bind you ever closer to me. We're close to the Christmas season now, a few weeks away. We'll be singing those wonderful Christmas carols, and we'll be thinking about a virgin-born infant coming into this world who was the Son of God, becoming a real man, being among us for a time, and then dying and rising again. And we say, oh, he went away. No, he didn't go away. Here, even before he died and was risen and was ascended, he said, I will be with you, I will be in you, and as a matter of fact, anything you do for God, I'll be doing it in you and through you. And so we can believe that Christ is in us today. If we know him, I hope I'm speaking to someone hearing me that's saying, yes, that's true of me. I've called him my Lord. And the Scripture says, I have the Holy Spirit. I don't always feel like it. The Holy Spirit can't be seen or pinned down or we can't draw a picture of him, but he's in the people of God. A great preacher still living, John Guest, was a preacher in Pittsburgh for years, born in England. John Guest told about his conversion at age 18 and he said, I woke up the next morning after I prayed to receive Christ as my Savior and my immediate and powerful thought was, I'm not alone anymore in this world. I'm not alone anymore. Christ is in me. That's what Jesus said here. I'm abiding in you. You're abiding in me and apart from me, you can do nothing nothing of any spiritual impact, nothing of any lasting eternal value, you cannot do it apart from me. Colossians two six has Paul writing there to say, just as you once accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, go on living in vital union with him. Abide in him, remain in him, pursue after the things that he makes known to you, especially of course, in god 's own word, and we could we could take that as a whole branch of our thoughts today, how the word of God it says right in verse seven that my words must abide in you, Scripture is of course a part of abiding, but we 're looking more at the part related to prayer today psalm thirty seven four says delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you." the desires of your heart. Why would you not get the desires of your heart if the desires of your heart are the Lord's desires? That's a simple kind of logic. As long as you simply desire the things of this world and pleasures and lusts and twisted things that are bound by your sinful self, well, don't expect God to load those upon you but if your fondest desires are in conformity with the very things that God most wants for you, this verse is saying, how can my Father help but grant them if they're the things that my Son himself would pursue and the Spirit is pursuing in you? So we're talking about the deliberate choices that our renewed will makes day after day to make them differently because we belong to Jesus Christ once in a while I've heard people say, well, pastor, you seem to harp a lot on the place of confession. We have this confession of sin in the bulletin, and and it, it makes me feel bad that I always have to confess my sin. I heard somebody say that one time. Well, good. I'm glad I made you feel bad. You need to feel bad. Your sin is an offense to God. You need to be reminded regularly that you are helpless spiritually before him and you must bow low before him and say, my God and Savior, look at what I am. I'm your child by faith, by your grace in Jesus Christ, but I'm still messed up. I still have all kinds of things I have to uh, account for and be humbled before you. So yes, we ask believers to pray in a prayer of confession because we're bowing all over again and saying, Lord, I'm poor, I'm naked, I'm blind, Apart from you, I can do nothing to please you except as you forgive me and hear my repentance. If my words remain in you, you will bear fruit. The goal of a Christian is to actively abide in Christ. But secondly, verse 7 here in John 15 says or suggests strongly that prayer is a primary means of abiding in our Lord. You'll hear... Our pastors, I know I'm not the only one who quotes from this fellow, a man named Bishop J.C. Ryle was a 19th century British leader in the Church of England. Those were dark times mostly. There were many, many, many voices in the Church of England when Ryle lived in the late 19th century uh, were unbelieving, skeptical voices. He was an evangelical through and through, believed the Bible to have its full authority from God, Here's something Ryle said about this subject. Quote him, to abide in Christ means to keep up a habit of constant communion with him, to lean on him, rest in him, pour your heart out to him as your fountain of life and strength. Ryle said it means that his very words dwell in you as a living stream of Christ consciousness runs through your memory and your reasoning and all your hopes as a guide to action. That's what abiding is. Ryle had his finger right on it. To concentrate on Christ as a living stream of Christ consciousness running through your mind. And he went on to say this, why is there so little power of prayer in our time? Simply because there's so little close, concentrated communion with Christ. Men do not abide in Christ, he said, so they do not pray, and they do not pray, and thus they do not abide. Leaning on our Savior, pouring our heart out to Him. Yes, our God is the high and transcendent God who created the stratosphere and the constellations, and, and we can talk about God with such grandeur that He can seem very far off, but here the Scripture is saying He's close. He's our Father. He's our brother. He's our counselor, our comforter, a friend who sticks even closer than a brother. He, by the Holy Spirit, has an intimacy with the Christian that the Christian must pursue and meet Christ in the intimacies of our lives, in the things we're doing, whether we're driving the car or preparing a teaching lesson for school or tucking a child into bed or making dinner or getting ready for an important business meeting, whatever it is you're doing, in all those intimate things of your day, do you see Christ as being intimately present and involved with you? In 1 John 5.14, John was also the writer there and stated a similar promise about prayer, and I think that sprang right out of what Jesus the Lord had told him in John 15:7, but in that 1 John 5 passage John wrote, ask whatever you will and it shall be given you. Ask whatever I will, here we are again. Uh, that sounds crazy. Anything I want, I'll get from God. Well, what's the condition? The condition is abide in Christ. Stick so close to Christ that you do what 2 Corinthians 10:5 says. Bring every thought into captivity to Christ. You are becoming attuned so closely to the will of Jesus Christ that at least at many points in your life, never perfectly while we're still in this body, but at least much more and better all the time if we're walking with him and praying with him, we are saying, Father, I want this. I, need, I ask you to do this, and we're asking for things that are directly from the Word of God. And that means we're saying, not my will, but yours be done. Well, thirdly, this morning, John fifteen seven leads us to the conclusion that God works by prayer to change us into a Christ-likeness, or if you will, a Christ-consciousness. Prayer does change things. It changes big events. I was reading something not long ago about the Battle of the Bulge, one of the amazing battles of World War II that could hardly explain circumstances and military analysis could hardly explain what happened because the Germans had their panzer divisions in full strength, surrounding, completely surrounding some American troops. The weather was awful, it was freezing. It was deep winter, one of the worst winters Europe had experienced. And you, by all reasonable means of events, those panzer tanks should have wiped out the American troops. But somehow an amazing story, and I can't begin to tell it all or fill in all the all the crevices and niches of this story with the subtleties that were there, put in the mind of an American commander when he was sent a a German emissary with a white flag, and they said, Surrender, you can't possibly survive. You need to surrender. We want to be merciful to you. And many of you know that commander sent back the one-word message that the Germans couldn't quite translate into German. He said, Nuts! He wasn't going to surrender. And somehow, the weather formed deep fog and kept that battle, kept those tanks from being able to execute what they would have done until a time when the fog cleared and U.S. forces could come in in a different way to reinforce and the Battle of the Bulge was not the disaster that it might have been. Did God change things? I think so. But God also acts upon the minds of people and they pray and find things changing as they pray. Let me tell you a quick story. A woman I knew, her name was Judy She had a fine singing voice. She used her voice to minister for God's glory, and one time in midlife, a doctor found that there were some nodules on her larynx, and he told her that this looked like it could very well become malignant if left alone, and he recommended surgery, and he told her frankly, Judy, I I can't guarantee you'll be able to sing after the surgery. Well, she asked for a little time to delay and think about it and pray, she said, I'm not afraid to die, and I'm afraid, though, to lose my singing voice. And she said she prayed one prayer consistently for a couple of weeks. It kind of went like this, Lord, teach me to accept this surgery and rest in your will if this is your will. Finally, she, in other words, she was saying, sing or don't sing, I rest in what you do, Lord, but just give me the peace I need to approach this. She prayed, finally she felt she did have peace and she submitted to the outcome of the surgery and said, Lord, you do what you will do, I'll accept it. She went for a pre-surgery checkup, the doctor examined the larynx, you guessed it, no indication of any lesions or any nodules. He said, I don't understand it, but you're clear, you don't need surgery. She went home, told her husband, and she hadn't really discussed this a lot with him from the first time and the first announcement of possible surgery. But he said, Judy, this is a wonderful answer to prayer. Do you know the one and only thing I've been praying for these three weeks is that God would heal you? And Judy realized I wasn't praying that. I, I never prayed that God heal me. I prayed, God, give me peace to accept whatever. If it was a negative outcome, help me to accept that. And don't you see how God answered both prayers? He worked something in Judy's body that apparently caused a a disturbing sign to be healed, that the lesions were not there, the nodules were not there when they looked again. He answered her husband's prayer that she be healed. And he answered her prayer, which was completely different, by giving her peace with whatever result came along. In Ephesians 1, Paul writes to those believers in Ephesus and He's writing about prayer for them, and he says, I keep asking the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ to give you all the spirit of wisdom and revelation to know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. What was Paul praying for? He was praying that these people would abide, that they would hold on, that they would reenact that faith which once saved them and justified them and now would work in them to make them more and more like Christ. We need to remain. We need to pray, folks. We need to look to God to say, work the change in me, Lord, because that may be what is the answer to my sour marriage relationship. Work the change in me because that might work out reconciliation in this messy thing going on at my place of work between me and my boss. Work in me. Make me more like Christ. Transform my attitudes of self-pity and pride and anger. Make me the catalyst that brings your works to bear in this world, Lord. Make me like Jesus Christ. Let me guarantee you that's a request that will never be denied. Make me like Jesus Christ. The Lord answers that prayer. Prayer changes historic events that mysteriously unfold differently, but it also works changes in us. Somebody said one time, when you pray, don't give God instructions, just report for duty. Anticipate that a large part of the answer you seek may come in God changing you, bringing you more and more into line with his perfect will. And then when you pray, of course he's going to do what you ask because you're asking what Christ would ask. Concluding word from 2 Corinthians 3. 2 Corinthians 3.17 and following doesn't mention the word prayer, but it is a passage that to me has always seemed to almost glow upon the page. It's talking about the very principle of John 15.7. The apostle said there in 2 Corinthians 3.17, we who with unveiled faces reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. That's what God has done for every man and woman who calls Jesus Lord. And now he's working so that even... If a small minority of people on this earth would shine forth with the inner glory of Christ in them and in their actions and their character, the purpose for which he put us on this earth would be realized. That we would be the reflectors, the visible image of the Lord Jesus Christ on this earth. And he would, through us, by his Holy Spirit, fan into a living flame the glory of God, as we pray. He will do it. Father, I pray that you take us imperfect as we are, unbelieving as we are. We who know Christ have to pray, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. There are whole parts of me that don't believe and don't want to obey and don't want to follow the callings of Christ in your word. Father, will you work in us more and more that the image of Jesus would be seen and thereby you would work through your people to change this world. For your glory we pray it. Amen.